This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 2. I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 20. Luke 2, 1 through 20. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's bow in prayer one more time. Lord, as we come to your word this morning to a text that is familiar, a story that we know well. I pray that you would grip our hearts anew with the wonder of the gospel. Emmanuel, God with us, grant us to understand the peace this morning that the angels sing about. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was digging around preparing for this sermon, um, I found an old talk I had given at a fellowship of Christian athletes meeting at a local middle school uh, this time last year. Actually, it's remarkable. Uh, Friday, this Friday will be uh, the last time, or a, week, a year ago last, next Friday will be a year since I talked about this exact same text. Um, and I started that lesson by posing, uh, posing this question. What are you anxious about right now? Ask this group of middle schoolers, what are you anxious about right now? And this was before face masks, plexiglass shields, nose swabs. And what was remarkable even back then was how easy that question was for these middle schoolers to answer. What are you anxious about right now? And I sat there for 10 minutes 
as a hundred kids answered that question. And by the time I had wrapped up that part of the lesson, there were still a hundred hands raised with plenty more things to share about. What am I anxious about? That's easy. Getting good grades, making friends, pleasing my parents, making it through the day without making a fool of myself. Annoying siblings, tough coaches, the list goes on and on. And I sat there listening to this. And, and now as I'm reflecting back to what those students told me, I'm realizing that while our anxiety is may change over the course of life, the fact of life remains, I still get anxious. To this day, I still get anxious. Even this morning, I was filled with anxiety as I came to bring God's word to God's people. I wish I could have gone back to that group of middle schoolers exactly a year later. I wish I could go this Friday and ask that exact same question to that exact same group of students. What are you anxious about now? I wonder if that answer would have been the same. I wonder if their answers would be different. I'm sure, regardless, a year later that a group of middle schoolers is being hounded by a steady stream of peace-stealing problems. That's a fact of life, and so I pose the same question for your consideration this morning. What are you anxious about right now? What are you anxious about right now? And while you're thinking about it, here's a follow-up question. If you could fix all the things that you're anxious about right now with a snap of a finger, would it create lasting peace for you? And I ask because there's a lot of talk about peace at Christmas time. We sing about peace. Chris just read a passage about peace. Our sermon this morning is about peace. I hear the phrase peace on earth a lot, but what does that mean? What is peace and how do we achieve it? As we're going to see this morning, the peace that the world offers, no matter how well-meaning, is only surface level and will never last but the peace that God offers lasts into eternity. Around Christmas time, we sing a song, the song we sang this morning, Hark, the Herald Angels Sing. Its lyrics are based on this text, to hark is to heed, to stop, and to pay attention. It's one thing to hark, to pay attention when someone sings. A a great singer gets up on a stage to hark, heed, and listen, and it's quite another to hark when an angel sings. So this morning, we need to stop and pay attention to the song that these angels sing about the birth of Jesus. Their song is simple. The message is clear. God has sent his Savior into the world to bring us peace with God. And this is a life-changing song, so let's stop and pay attention. Verse 1 starts in chapter 2. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Now, this was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, if you remember last week, we learned that God's people at this time were still under the thumb of the Romans. They had to obey the laws and wishes of their rulers, and the Jews hated the Romans. They longed for the day when they could rise up and overthrow their oppressors. They waited for that day. They put their hope in a Messiah who would overthrow the Romans. But it wouldn't be this day. Caesar Augustus, the verse tells us, the most powerful man in the world is calling a census, a numbering of, quote, all the world. That is, everyone who lived in Roman provinces. And his lackey, Quirinius, 
sees the execution of the census in Syria, the land of the Jews. And this census is for one purpose and one purpose alone, taxation. And if you know who your subjects are, what they do, how old they are, you can squeeze every last penny out of them. And so verse 3 tells us, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. The people living in Israel had no choice but to go get registered. And if you had moved away from your hometown at some point, you had to travel back to your hometown to get registered. So around this time, there was a mass movement of people around Syria as folks go to get registered. Workers set their businesses in order and shut down for the week. Employees cash in on their vacation days. Families prepare. Mothers get their kids all packed. Fathers make the necessary preparations. And all this so that families can go to get taxed more. This wasn't a happy time for anybody. And it's into this hustle and bustle that Joseph and Mary enter. This young yet unmarried couple awaiting the birth of Mary's baby. Now, this is important. This uh, bit of information about this travel is important, and we're about to find out why. Look at verse 4. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So Joseph and Mary make the journey to Joseph's hometown. Now it's about 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And for us, that's about the distance from MCA to Paris, Texas, 90 miles, which isn't that big of a deal for us. We can make that trip in an afternoon. But in those days, a trip of that length would have taken somewhere around 8 to 14 days. It's a hike. And that's over hilly terrain, exposed to the elements, avoiding dangers like wild animals and bands of robbers. And the journey must have been particularly difficult for this young couple, a young poor carpenter and a teenage mom. They probably traveled with a caravan, not in cars, but on foot, perhaps on a donkey. This difficult journey was not something that they asked for, but something that was important. Because Bethlehem wasn't only the town of Joseph's birth, it was also the hometown of his great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, King David. It was the town in which David was crowned king of Israel so many years ago. And it was also the town that centuries before this, the prophet Micah had prophesied that the Savior would be born. Micah 5.2 prophesies, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be the ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So this young mother and her betrothed, the journey to Bethlehem was a grueling trial on the path to the birth of their firstborn son. But for God's people, the journey that they made was a promise being fulfilled by a God who keeps his promises. The Savior's coming was happening just as had been foretold. And no one would have believed the manner in which the Messiah would come because his birth was lowly. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Can you imagine that? 
Mary, this teenage mom, a first-time mom, separated by an eight-day's journey from her family, her mother, her village midwives, and every small comfort that a girl of modest means could afford in that day, going into labor in a strange town among strange people in the most squalid conditions. Scripture describes the birth of Jesus in just two verses, but in those verses we can fill in a lot of details. This was Mary's first child, so she must have been frightened. She must have been terrified when the labor pains began in this strange town among strangers. The delivery of a sinless Savior by no means mitigated the pain, the curse of pain in childbirth. And while they were staying in Joseph's hometown, perhaps in the home of a family member, Mary was not in her hometown. She was in a town full of complete strangers alone on the hardest night of her life. The text tells us there was no room for them in the inn. That word is sometimes translated guest house, which means that they did not have access to a private, comfortable room. Now, Bethlehem was filled to bursting with travelers going to get registered. And the mention of the manger tells us that the shelter that they did have was among animals. It may have been a dirt floor room where the animals of the household were brought in at night. It could have been a stall attached to the main house or maybe even a cave owned by the family of the house. Either way, sheep and cattle and donkeys were Mary's attendants on this night that was filled with the sounds and smells of barnyard animals. This was not a silent night. This was a noisy night, a terrifying night, a night that was filled with the sounds of barnyard animals accompanying the cries of pain and triumph as the Savior of the world was born to the lowliest of the low. When Christ was born, there were no purple robes to wrap this little king in. There were no gilded blankets to comfort him. The text says that Mary wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Do you know what swaddling cloths are? Strips of cloth that were torn from a piece of clothing. Whatever you had around, maybe a cloak. What did they have in Nazareth? Strips of cloth. That served as the swaddling blanket of this newborn king. There was no cradle for this special child, no bed for the newborn king. A manger served as his sleeping place, a feeding trough for animals hewn from wood or more likely a hole that had just been dug into the dirt and filled with hay. The long-awaited Savior, the eternal Son of God, God came among those he meant to save. An ordinary birth, wrapped in ordinary swaddling cloths, resting his newborn head in a hole in the dirt. His birth was lowly, but at long last the Savior had come. The King of Kings was born in a small town among strangers. No one in Bethlehem knew what had happened that night. They could not have known that a king had been born in their little town. Now, the birth of a king in ancient times was always accompanied by a flurry of activity as emissaries and messengers carried the news to neighboring rulers and leaders. Now, it would have been a travesty at this time for the birth of the king of kings to go unannounced and announce the birth of Jesus. God does. He sends his heavenly heralds. He doesn't send them to Caesar the guy who's 
making people travel all over the world. They get taxed. No, he doesn't send them to Caesar to declare war. He sends them to shepherds to declare peace. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now, I think it's important that we understand how upside down all this is. We view shepherds positively in our day. When I think of shepherds, I envision King David's out in a field, gently tending to their father's flocks, writing psalms and hymns in the countryside. Well, not so in those days. Shepherds were rough dudes. They were rough. They were tough. They tended to their flocks outside the city walls. They slept under the stars. And so according to the Old Testament law, they were ceremonially unclean. These guys couldn't even go to the temple to worship God. They were far from God. They had a reputation for being thieves and liars. In fact, a shepherd's testimony was considered dismissible in court. They were far from God. They were far from people. They shared the same social caste as lepers. They were the lowest of the low. And to those guys, God decides to send his announcement. And what an announcement. It would have been a dark and quiet night outside Bethlehem. No activity, no travel. Bethlehem's a small town out in the middle of nowhere. It would have been dark. The only light would have been light from the stars and maybe candles in the distance in the windows in Bethlehem. When suddenly the angel of the Lord appears around them, the text says the glory of the Lord shone around them and the lights of Bethlehem became invisible. The stars disappeared in the presence of an ancient being who spent his existence before the throne room of God. Heaven is described as a place with no sun because the Shekinah glory of the Lord fills the entire place. There is no corner with darkness in heaven because the glory of the Lord fills it up. I've often imagined what this once in a thousand years kind of experience must have been like for these guys. Scripture records for us that when people see angels, some interesting things happen. People's lips stop working. They don't know how to speak anymore. Their knees start shaking. They don't know how to walk anymore. They are seized with fear. They fall down and worship. They tremble. They fall on their face like dead men. The glory of God is a revealing light. People in God's presence feel vulnerable and exposed because suddenly they are aware, I am very sinful and I am in big trouble. And verse 9 says that the shepherds were gripped with great fear. I like to think that one of these tough guys just fainted on the spot. And then the angel speaks. And this is what he says in verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not. The same thing he said to Mary last week in chapter 1. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. This is the same assurance that Mary received. Do not be afraid. I don't come to judge your sin or to punish your unrighteous deeds. I come to bring you gospel. I come to bring you good news. And in case I wasn't clear enough, this is good news of great joy. It's really good. It's really great. It's something worth celebrating. And in case the fact that I came to you shepherds isn't proof enough, here's the truth. This is good news for all people everywhere. Now, there's two parts to this good news. Usually when you hear two parts of news, there's good news and there's bad news, right? Well, this morning there's good news and then there's good news. So which do you want to hear first, the good news or the good news? Well, the good news is this. 
The good news is that someone's been born. Look at verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now the shepherds didn't need angels to tell them the special name of Bethlehem, the city of David. It was called this because that was the town where David was first declared king. A new king has just been declared this night. The eternal king of David's lineage, born in David's city because of a taxation census by a pagan ruler. God is sovereign over the affairs of man, is he not? He moves things around when people feel like they're in control. God is behind it all, moving all things according to the counsel of his will. This person, Jesus, the Savior, is a Savior, not of a small town only, but of the whole world, who is Christ the Lord. Now, Christ is another name for Messiah, the one God promised to send who would make all things right, the serpent crusher of Genesis 3, the seed of Abraham of Genesis 22, the eternal king of David in 2 Samuel 7, the servant of God in Isaiah 53, and the very Son of God, according to Luke chapter 3. The angel calls Jesus Christ the Lord. Only God receives that title in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. Now that's the good news. Now here's the good news. A sign is given. Verse 12, and this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. Now, this sign is important for two reasons. One, it reiterates that the Savior's birth was ordinary. He was wrapped in swaddling cloths just like every other baby. If two babies had been born in Bethlehem that night, the shepherds couldn't have told them apart. And the other reason that this is important is because the Savior's birth is remarkably lowly. He's lying in a manger, a feeding trough, a hole in the dirt covered in straw, a newborn baby. There's no one too low that Christ didn't come to save. Because from his birth, he belonged to the lowest of the low. No one in this room had a birth as lowly as Jesus. But surely many of us have been brought very low. Sin cripples us. Life knocks the wind from our lungs. But if you've been brought down to the dirt, rejoice. Fear not, because the Savior was born in a hole in the dirt. These lying, thieving shepherds stood in the sin-exposing glory of God and were commanded, do not fear. Who could you possibly be and what could you have possibly done that God would exclude you from the news, which, and I quote, will be for all people. Paul, writing decades later, announces the same good news in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Now that's a messenger. And Paul's no angel. The man we know as the author of half of the New Testament had once been a religious zealot, a terrorist of sorts who made a living off of imprisoning and slaughtering Christians. Luke tells us that Paul was present at the first intentional killing of a Christian. And he was holding the coats of his colleagues so they could throw rocks harder at this innocent man. But God got a hold of his life, and this murderer-turned-Christian had this to say about the angel's good news. He said, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, 
Who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also now not also give with him graciously all things? It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done or how low you've been brought. This good news is for you. But hold on to your seats because the good news just keeps on pouring in. And this time the angel calls for backup because he's got a song to sing. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heaven uh, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. As if one angel isn't terrifying enough. Now the shepherds have to manage their fears over a whole host of angels Verse 13 says that the angel was joined by a multitude of the heavenly host, literally an army of heaven. And these guys are no joke. Angels are formidable. Uh, and one time in 2 Kings chapter 19, God sent just a single angel against an entire army camped against Israel. And in a single night, that angel slew 185,000 Assyrians in a single night. Another time, God sent the angel against Egypt as the tenth and final plague against in the Exodus. And in a single night, every firstborn in the entire country was dead. These guys are no joke. But this night, these angels don't come to execute God's judgment. They don't come with swords in their hands, helmets on their heads, but with a song on their lips. And on the night that Jesus was born, the host of heaven, the army of heaven arrived not to declare war on earth, but to sing a song of peace. And this is what they sang. Glory to God in the highest. To glory to God is to give him credit for what he's done and for who he is. It's saying that God deserves the attention. God deserves the adoration. God deserves the praise because he's good and because he is great. In the previous chapter, Mary sang a song of praise that we talked about last week when she discovered that the baby in her belly was the Savior that God had promised. And for the part that she played in God's story, she had this to say, all generations will call me blessed because he who is mighty has done great things and holy is his name. All glory goes to God because salvation belongs to him. He is holy, he is good, and he is full of mercy. And the angels declare that salvation is the reason that God is receiving glory. The seeing peace on earth has become something of a Christmas trope. Have you ever stopped to consider what the angels mean by this phrase, peace on earth? I think when we reflect on the state of peace in the world right now, and we'd quickly conclude what they do not mean. Our world is not one I would tend to describe as peaceful. I don't know about you. It's a pretty chaotic place. It's a pretty war-torn place. You just have to replay the events of the past year, and I'm sure any month you could check a box called riots, shootings, global terrorism, a pandemic, but I don't have to recount the sins of 2020 to convince you the world is not at peace. The world was not at peace last year. The world was not at peace the year before it. 
We are just playing out in real time a world that is at war. How are we 2,000 years later singing peace on earth with the angels and there is not peace on earth? Did the mission of Jesus fail? Did the Savior not do what God promised he would do? I don't think so. And the reason I'm so confident in that is because we need to listen to this song carefully. Verse 14 isn't telling us that the birth of Jesus means peace for everyone in the world. It's telling us that among those, listen, with whom God is pleased, there is peace. But what does that mean? It means that Christ came to bring us peace with God. The world is not peaceful among its own, that's true, but the world is passing away. The greater horror facing every one of us is that humanity is not at peace with God. You'll recall last week we recounted the history of redemption, that mankind was created perfect and holy like God, but through willful rebellion broke its relationship with God. Creation was cursed and judgment was ordained and now we are at war with God. And apart from Christ, I'm at war with God. Apart from Christ, you're at war with God. In fact, from the moment we're born, our cute little chubby fists are curled up in rebellion against a holy God. And we stay in that pose until the day we die. Into this world we come in iniquity, and out of this world we go in iniquity. We're at war with God as a direct, and as a direct consequence, there is no peace on earth. God says, love your neighbor as yourself. And I say, yeah, I'd rather die. God says, strive to live peaceably among your neighbors. And I say, I'd rather take my chances. On a global scale, we perpetuate war. We perpetuate riots, unrest, political tomfoolery because we're at war with God. And none of us is innocent of this. You have surely found yourself caught up in divisions among friends. You've surely at some point found yourself caught up where you have to pick sides. You've surely found yourself caught up in strife among family members where just the slightest misplaced world is like triggering a landmine. You've surely been involved in rivalries among coworkers or seen it or been tempted to do it. And so God sent the Savior of the world to bring peace on earth. And notice how he didn't do it. God did not send a military leader to conquer all rebellion and force peace by the sword. He didn't bring a skilled diplomat to infiltrate the political machine, barter peace treaties between nations. He didn't send a charismatic leader to unite all the governments of the world. He sent his own son as a lowly child, born among lowly people, born under the burden of the law, yet filled with the Holy Spirit to break the infinite cycle of sin and reconcile sinners to God. The peace that the angels proclaim is not horizontal primarily, not among us primarily, but vertical, us with God. The good news is that God sent the Savior into the world to save sinners from their sin and to reconcile us to God. Notice the God-centric focus of this song And on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is election language, brothers and sisters. That glorious doctrine that we've been studying for a month in Ephesians chapter 1. God's sovereignty and our salvation go hand in hand. Ephesians 1.5 says that in love he predestined us 
for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Those with whom God is pleased are his elected adopted sons and daughters. If you're in Christ, you're a child of God. That's why he's pleased with you. This is election language. Now listen to Ephesians chapter 1 verses 11 and 12 and see if you can't hear the angel's song and Paul's song. In him we have obtained an inheritance. We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. There's peace on earth between us and God, so all the glory goes to God. The chaos, war, and pain around us are real and grievous. We are often afflicted on every side, yet incredibly, among those with whom God is pleased, that's us, if you've believed in Christ, that's you, among us, there is an abiding peace, peace that doesn't have to break. Because at the end of the day, I know that no matter what I face, I am going to be okay because the God of the universe is reconciled to me and is pleased with me because of the work of Jesus. If you've never had your peace tested, this this promise may feel a little hollow to you. But I would encourage you to consider those even in our own midst this morning who have had their peace shaken. There are those among us who have been grossly affected by this pandemic. Not all of us, but some of us. High-risk folks who can't worship with us in person, who can't see family, who are waiting earnestly for the end of this thing. And if you talk to those people, those people who haven't been able to join us because of health reasons, you'll find, by and large, hope. Because no matter how bad things get, on the other side, they know there is an eternity of peace with God. You will find those among us who've experienced tremendous loss over the years. Those among us who've lost a spouse. Those among us who have lost children. And you'll see grieving people, heartbroken people. And if you look close enough, you will see grieving people, heartbroken people, but people who still have hope because they are at peace with God. Do you know the peace of God this morning? I don't know what you're going through. Holidays are a time of peace, but man, they are a time of anxiety. (laughs) There's a lot to do. It just seems that as the holidays grow closer, our days get busier. There's more opportunities to get fussy and angry and anxious. Yet do you know the peace of God this morning being united with God because of the work of Christ? This is available for us The shepherds didn't wait. They, the moment the angels left, they went immediately to find the source of this God-reconciling peace. The text finishes up. It says in verse 15, Now when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger, probably still trembling and breathless from the angelic visit they had just experienced, the shepherds deliberate to go immediately into the uh, village and find this child. So off they go into Bethlehem, 
I wish I could have been there that night and just seen the chaos that they raised as they went knocking on doors, probably peeking through windows. Have you seen a baby in a hole in the dirt? As they walked around Bethlehem, probably waking up half the town before finally, verse 15 tells us, they find Mary and Joseph and the baby in a manger just as the angel had told them. And verse 17 tells us that when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. We don't know how everyone responded to the good news that night. But scripture records three responses. And as we close, let's ponder these responses and see if we can't see ourselves in them. First, there were people who wondered at the good news. Verse 18 says, and all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. The the people of Bethlehem didn't know what to do with this information. Angelic messengers, the Messiah born here tonight, and all this from the lips of shepherds? The text doesn't say that they disbelieved, but it doesn't say that they believed either. They just wondered or puzzled at what it all meant. Many who hear the gospel even today remain at that place They listen carefully, they come to church, they're entertained by the story, they wonder if it could be true, but they don't stake a claim in it. They go back to bed like the people in Bethlehem did that night, their lives no different for the Savior of the world having been born just yards from where they lay. Verse 19 records a second response. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in in her heart. Here is a sign of faith, a response of faith. Mary treasured these things. She treasured the miracle birth, the manger, the angels, the sign, the promise, the shepherds. She treasured all of it. And she treasured these things that belonged to God and she valued them. She pondered them in her heart. Like the people of Bethlehem, she didn't know quite what to do with what had happened that night, but she pondered it. Those who truly believe the gospel love to dwell on the gospel. They give the things of the gospel the place of priority in their minds and in their hearts. When they daydream, they think about it. When they think deep thoughts, they think about it. They are the things we keep coming back to. And I'm sure many of you will be reading the Christmas story in Luke and Matthew this month. I'd encourage you to really try to meditate on the details that you've been reading. Kids, Your parents will probably read you the Christmas story at some point in the next month. And if they do, I want you to close your eyes and try to imagine what it must have been like to be there that night. What must it have been like to be a shepherd in the darkness and suddenly seeing a host of angels all around you? What must it have been like to be Mary and Joseph lying a baby in the manger wondering, could this really be the Savior of the world? Well, verse 20 records a final response. Verse 20 says, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen and heard as it had been told them. Here again is a response of faith. The shepherds returned to their flocks, they left the city, and they went back to their same boring, ordinary lives, never to be visited by an angel again. But something had changed. 
while their circumstances were the same, their hearts were different. They returned glorifying and praising God, not only for this marvelous once-in-a-lifetime experience, but also because everything that had happened had happened exactly as the angels had told them. They saw that God keeps his promises. We never hear of these shepherds again in the Bible. Did anyone else believe their story? Were they mocked by their fellow shepherds? Did they ever meet Jesus later on? We don't know. But what we do know is that they had been given good news and they turned right around and worshiped God for it. They had believed the good news that had been sung to them that night by the angels and they knew the peace of God. The song is called, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Stop, take heed. Stop and pay attention. Peace is available because Christ has reconciled sinners with God. So what are you going to do with the good news? The people of Bethlehem were interested, but their lives were unchanged. Mary treasured it and pondered it in her heart. And the shepherds believed it, and their lives were changed forever. And while angel voices aren't singing the song this morning, God's word invites you to pay attention his Savior is here to bring peace with God. Will you heed the angel's song? Will you believe in the Savior and be reconciled to God? Let's pray. Lord, your peace is described as something that passes all understanding. It's uh, unimaginable. And so many of us go through our days acting as if we don't have that available to us. Oh Lord, I pray you would convict our hearts of unbelief. That if we've been like the people of Bethlehem to, to think about it, to wonder about the good news of the gospel, but if we haven't staked a claim in Christ, Convict our hearts of our sin. Show us how deeply we need a Savior and bring us to your Son. Lord, as we sing about what Christ has done, again, I pray that you would convince us of its truthfulness. As we sing of peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased, help us to experience that peace among ourselves. In Christ's name, amen.